0: One announcement before we get started, you can put this in your calendar and it will be in the bulletin beginning this, uh, this Sunday, but on Wednesday, April the 2nd, Bible class will be on Tuesday, April the 1st, and that's not an April Fool's joke. Wednesday the 2nd, we'll move it to, April, to Tuesday night that week. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, also ready to put aside the all the little distractions of the day after you've been running hard all day and then you sit down, besides the tendency to fall fast asleep while you listen to the doctrine, there's the tendency to uh, start thinking about tomorrow, yesterday, the worries of the day, so we want to make sure that we also focus our attention on the Word this evening. So let's bow our heads together. Uh, After a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have to study your word this evening. Thank you that you have given us information that we could not derive from any other source. That you, in giving this information, help us to understand who we are as those, as creatures created in your image to glorify you. Father, we thank you that. Your word is clear on these things and we are not uh, left to simply speculate or guess. And Father, we thank you for the fact that you have given us the Holy Spirit to enable us to live the spiritual life and to understand your word and to grow and mature and to be able to apply your word consistently in times of adversity, times of testing. Father, we continue to pray for our nation during this time of a national crisis, national testing as we Uh, continue the war against terrorism and face this uh, potential war against Iraq. We pray that you would weaken the enemy, that they would make mistakes, that that the Iraqi people would rise up against their uh, uh, dictatorial and tyrannical leaders and overthrow them even as we invade, if that is the course. And, Father, we pray that you would protect our men, that these horrible weapons that the Iraqis have would not be used And that you would especially keep the men from this congregation safe and watch over them. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study today and that we might be challenged by them, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, a verse that almost everybody should have memorized or should know. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Not a long verse, but arguably one of the most profound and significant verses in all of Scripture. The Bible begins with a clear assertion of not only the existence of God, which is not argued for at all, but it's not proven, it's just stated, but with the clear statement that God has created everything in the universe and that God is completely distinct from everything in the universe. Now, sometimes we, especially by we I mean Christians who have been in a church context, studying the Word for much of their life, we sometimes take this a little bit for granted. Sometimes we're so familiar with what is stated here that we miss the impact of it. Also, because of our national history and national heritage, where we live in a nation that has been... Uh, Influenced so deeply and so profoundly by biblical truth and that in previous generations there was a tremendous commitment to uh, the creationist position in Genesis chapter 1 because we live in a post-Reformation society where we look back to the Reformation and the impact of the Reformation in the 16th century, 17th century, and the impact that had uh, on history because of their commitment to biblical truth we often forget the the resounding uh, impact of this first verse in Genesis and the impact it had in the time in which Moses wrote. We think that Genesis 1, as, as Christians, sometimes we think that this was something people always believed. It's not. This was a minority position when Moses wrote it. It was just as much uh, fought against During the time, uh, during the Old Testament, by the pagan cultures surrounding Israel, the truth of Genesis 1 1 was resisted by many in Israel. It was resisted by those the Apostle Paul preached to on his missionary journeys. It was just as controversial when Paul went to Thessalonica and to Berea and to Athens as it is today. And we will see that. And I want you to remember that, that what is taught in Genesis chapter 1 in terms of a creation emphasizing a distinct creator, it was as revolutionary and controversial in that day as it is today. No culture held that view. They all held other views that are not too different from modern Darwinistic uh, views or evolutionary views. Now, as we get into Genesis chapter 1, I want us to be reminded of the importance of studying origins. Why is it important that we study the doctrine of origins? Well, first of all, the origination of anything is directly related to its purpose or its meaning. Just think about what happens when you've been involved in some group or you were involved in some business or organization or perhaps in the military Uh, you were in it with a particular group and for some reason things began to fall apart and you weren't accomplishing your objectives and you began to question uh... what are we doing why aren't we getting where we think we ought to go and what people do when they try to bring organizational efficiency back they go back to the beginning and say okay what is the purpose for this organization why was it founded and you go back to the question of origins This is one reason that people are attracted to doing um, genealogical studies is to give them some sort of sense of meaning or purpose by grounding their existence into a a historical flow uh, based on what their ancestors have done. So the origination of anything is directly related to its purpose or meaning. In divine viewpoint, Scripture teaches that God intentionally Planned and executed the creation of mankind. God is a God of order. He's a God of reason. He doesn't just do things because he wakes up one morning and he decides that this will float his boat, so he goes out and does it. He thinks about it. It is planned. It is something that he does with a purpose. So, in divine viewpoint, we believe God intentionally planned and executed the creation of mankind. Therefore, mankind was created for a purpose. This means that life, the life of every human being, has meaning and purpose and value which is derived from the Creator and defined by the Creator. It is the Creator that defines who and what we are, the purpose and meaning of life. Now, in contrast to divine viewpoint, human viewpoint, whether you're talking about some religious system such as Hinduism, Confuci- Confucianism, Buddhism, uh, whatever, animism, whatever it might be, or you're talking about some sort of philosophical system, life ultimately in all of these systems always is the product of time plus chance. I'll point out some things as we go through this study. We'll look at different views of origins among the Greeks, among the Egyptians, Mesopotamians, the Hindu, the Indians in pre-Hindu theology, their mythology, their creation mythologies, all start with an eternal, some sort of etern- eternal time or matter or something is is always there, and there's some sort of chaos, and everything starts with this with this chaos, and then with enough time and chance, order is brought into chaos. That is no different from modern Darwinistic evolution. The only difference is that in, in modern times we attach a lot of technical, scientific-sounding terminology to these processes where in the ancient world they attributed them to a personifi- some sort of God that personified the forces of nature. In human viewpoint, therefore, since life is the product of time plus chance and your life is the product of time plus chance, the only meaning that you can have or the only meaning that man can have is derived from either a society. The only way you have meaning is what society, what your culture, what your country assigns the the meaning to be. And when the society determines the value and meaning of a purpose, that fits into a generally a Marxist, Uh, philosophy of history or the meaning can be assigned by the individual this fits into more of an existential framework where the only meaning i really have is the meaning that i create and so in pure existentialism when there's no meaning or purpose in life except what you create then what you have to do something significant in order to give meaning to your life now, since there's no ultimate reality or ultimate absolute, there's no such thing as a right or wrong, so it doesn't matter whether uh, committing genocide, uh, or whether you commit genocide or whether you help somebody through some sort of tremendous altruistic endeavor, uh, it doesn't matter which it is, either one validates your existence and gives it meaning. There's no basis for judging whether one is right or what one is wrong, there's no basis there, so you, life Gains its meaning either from society or from the individual assigning meaning to himself, or there's just no meaning at all. That's the position of the nihilist, who just thinks there's no meaning. It's just time. It's just chance. It's just a cosmic accident that you're here, and nothing you do has any significance or meaning. And then the the a fourth view would say that the only meaning that man has is that that is derived from what it produ- produces. And that would be a utilitarian meaning. The the only meaning you have derives from what is produced. So human viewpoint, there's no inherent meaning. It just comes from whatever something else in the creation assigns to the individual. So the first point under importance of origins is that the origination of anything is directly related to its purpose or meaning. And the Bible says that we come from God. He created us in his image. So that gives us our meaning and purpose, and defines our purpose and and our meaning. Second point is that origins provides the foundation for society, life, law, civilization, and How, Whatever your society is, whatever the religious beliefs are, whether you live in a a Hinduistic society in India, whether you live in an Islamic society, whether you live in a a, a Judeo-Christian society or an animistic society, your view of origins is what will determine... Uh, the nature of society, the meaning of life. It will, it will be the foundation for all ethical decisions, and thus it's the foundation for law and legal theory. It is the foundation for that civilization and for the, all the institutions in that civilization. So origins defines everything in life. Ultimately, everything that you're engaged in, from education to government to health care, whatever it is, always goes back at some point to your view of origins. Psalm and. Our Psalm 11.3 says, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? In this psalm, the psalmist recognizes the importance of the foundations, or as we're putting it here, the the origins. Third point in terms of origins. Origins are the Archimedean fulcrum. Archimedes, here I'll spell it for you, A R C H I M E. D-E-S, was a uh, Greek uh, physicist, inventor, and mathematician who was responsible for a number of different uh, innovations, but in reference to a lever, once said, give me a place to stand and I will move the world. See, in order to move anything with a lever, you have to have a fulcrum, like here's the world, you need to have a fulcrum out here on which to place that lever and Archimedes said if you can just find me a place to put the lever I can move the world so that has come to mean uh, metaphorically anything that is so foundational that everything moves on that point and on origins everything else in society moves no matter what it is. If uh, you change your view of origins, you change your view of ethics. This is why people don't realize the ultimate significance of what happened when this country threw out creationism and shifted to evolutionism and Darwinism. It changed the very foundation for ethics, for for right and wrong, for truth and falsehood. It changed the nature. uh, That, in turn, impacts law, and legal theory if everything is flux let me bring it down to a real basic level if everything is flux and the evolution is is change and everything is going from it is always in a process of change and movement then there are no absolutes apply that to law if you have a creationist absolutist mentality then when you go to the constitution the constitution has an absolute meaning but if you have an evolutionary framework and you apply that to law then the constitution is A living, breathing document that is reinterpreted for every generation. So that comes out of an ultimate evolutionary metaphysic or an evolutionary view of ultimate reality. So creation gives us a basis for saying that outside of the world there is an objective point of reference on which everything turns. If you have an objective point of reference that is outside the universe, as it were, then you have a basis for saying that something is absolute truth versus absolute falsehood. That um, You have a basis for saying that something is absolutely right Versus absolutely wrong. But if there is no external fulcrum point, then you end up with nothing more than relativism, and all judgments become uh, simply a matter of opinion, which is then enforced by might as opposed to right. And the fourth point is that whatever you choose as the basis for origins defines ultimate reality. So if you decide that the universe is the result of a big bang, that everything comes out of, eight, out of matter and energy, then matter and energy can't produce anything other than matter and energy. So ultimate reality means that everything is material. So we end up worshiping that which is material. And you produce a materialistic society because that which is spiritual doesn't exist and has no value and whether you are in an ancient world where you believe that ultimate reality was a watery chaos governed by these uh, gods that personified the forces of nature, what do you end up worshiping? The forces of nature. So whatever you ground your ultimate metaphysic in, and by that I mean the term metaphysic is a, is a technical, um, philosophical term, and metaphysic, comes from the Greek word meta meaning beyond and physic meaning the the nature or beyond the physical or that which is observable, so what you're doing is you're going beyond creation you're going beyond creation to ultimate reality that is beyond that which is seen or heard or felt, and you're going out to that which is beyond and you're making some sort of determination of what's out there, and that becomes ultimate ultimate reality so whatever you choose as the basis for origins defines for you ultimate reality and then that ultimate reality always becomes the ultimate object of worship for mankind that gives us four reasons why origins are important and they must be thought through consistently because it affects everything. Now, most people, unfortunately, aren't very consistent in the way they think, so they hold to a lot of different beliefs and a lot of different ideas that are internally inconsistent. They don't fit together, but they make somebody feel good, so they're, in their irrationality they hold to those views. But we're not concerned about people who want to go through life on the basis of irrational emotion. We're concerned about people who are con- who want to think and have consistent thoughts. So uh, origins are important because they affect everything. They affect how you view everything you do in life, and at some point it goes back to origins. Now we come to this third point by way of introduction as we get into Genesis 1 and that is the use of creation in Scripture. You see, some people get the idea that, well, creation is just a controversial subject. Let's not get into that if we get involved in a and we're witnessing to somebody and they bring up the idea of creation or evolution. Uh, just step around that and focus on Jesus Christ and, and the gospel. Don't get caught up. ...with some sort of secondary issue and creation is is just a secondary issue and it's too controversial and there are too many people who have a science background in in biology or geology or something like that and they just won't be responsive. You'll just turn them off to Christ at the very beginning if you insist on some sort of creationist position and they uh, they won't respond to the gospel whereas otherwise if you had just stepped around that they probably would have uh, been saved. Well, that reflects so many falsehoods, I don't have time to deal with all of them. If somebody's positive, they're going, to, they're going to respond to the gospel. But first of all, let me just point out that this is based on a false assumption. The gospel itself is the story of the God of creation, the God who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, the God of creation redeeming his creation. It is it emphasizes through the New Testament passages like Colossians 1, 16 and 17 that the Jesus who saved us is the Jesus who made us. In him, all things were in him and by him and through him were all things made. Nothing, John 1, 3 says, there was nothing made that is made that came into being apart from him. So you can't hold to a biblical Jesus if that Jesus didn't create everything from nothing, second, this idea that creation somehow is just too controversial, don't muddy the water with it, with it is uh, based on a false assumption that it hasn't always been controversial. But see, the reality is, as I pointed out initially, creation has always been controversial. It was just as controversial for Moses to write, In the beginning God created in his world. And As we go through this study, we will see some examples of the creation ideas that surrounded the Jews at that time. It, Genesis 1 was just as controversial at that time as it is today, and it was just as, as controversial for the Apostle Paul. But if we think that by setting aside creation and just step around it, it's not important in witnessing, I want you to pay attention to how the Apostle Paul handled creation when he spoke to Gentile audiences, pagan audiences had no frame of reference in the Scripture, who were committed to another position of origins. I want you to look at this, so turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 14. Here we find Paul on his first missionary journey. He is in the south central area of what is modern Turkey. And he is performing he is he has performed various miracles. Look at verse 8. In Lystra a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet, and he leaped and walked. Now, when the people saw what Paul had done, I want you to notice their their reaction. Paul performs these miracles, and he has he has proclaimed the gospel, and the people completely misunderstand what he has said. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but that frequently happens that when we're trying to communicate the gospel or divine viewpoint to someone with no frame of reference, someone operating on pure human viewpoint, that they completely misunderstand us. You know, I know that never happens when I teach here on Sunday morning, that everybody always completely understands what I'm trying to communicate. But every now and then I hear somebody say something and I think, good night, who have they been listening to? Maybe I just can't communicate at all. So Paul is clearly misunderstood, and their response in verse 11 is, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. They they look at Paul and Barnabas and they think that they are gods. What has happened is that they have taken the truth of what Paul has just said, and they've completely reinterpreted. They didn't even think about it. This wasn't necessarily a conscious thing. This is how human viewpoint works. It just reinterprets truth into its own framework. It reinterprets truth into its own framework. No matter how clear and objective it was, no matter how clear and precise his teaching was, they interpreted it within their own frame of reference, their own their own presuppositions. And look at how Paul handles this. Uh, skip down to verse 15. See, in verses 12 to 14, they identify Barnabas as Zeus and Paul as Hermes, and they're interpreting everything they're doing within their religious frame of reference. Paul stops them, and uh, verse 14 and says, Men, why are you doing these things? This is um, verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also. Men of the same nature as you, and preach or proclaim or announce the gospel to you, in order that you should, what? Turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. See, he first off, he challenges them by saying that we are men of the same nature as you are. He challenges their assumption of creating gods in their own image. Second thing he challenges them to do is to turn. This is the idea of genuine repentance that is to change their thinking. Now when Paul says to change their thinking, he's not simply talking about changing their thinking about Jesus. Notice he's talking about the fact that when Christianity comes, it is going to overhaul everything. You know, people think that if if uh, the Holy Spirit's going to show up and overhaul your life, that you're going to it's like calling in the interior decorator, and they're going to put up new curtains and maybe put in hardwood floors instead of uh, wall-to-wall carpeting, and they're going to uh, paint the room a different color, but what happens is that when the Holy Spirit's the interior decorator, he comes in with a bulldozer because he's going to take down the whole structure and move the foundation, and that's what Paul is challenging here is their foundation, back to the quote from Psalm 11.3 that the foundation is what's important. Their foundation was off. And see, this happens so often in, in evangelism that if you tell somebody that they need Jesus to save them and they trust in Jesus but you don't identify who Jesus is or what he's saving them from, all of which presupposes an understanding of Genesis 1 through 3, then you end up like we have today, people running around thinking they're saved and they trust Jesus, But their Jesus is a funny-looking Jesus, and these people aren't even sure they believe in a God who created everything. And see, Jesus, the Jesus of the New Testament, is the eternal second person of the Trinity who exists in hypostatic union, who... Became flesh and dwelt among us, and he is the creator of all things. When John starts off identifying who Jesus is in John 1 1 through 3, he identifies him as the creator of everything that is, and nothing that has come into into being uh, has come into being except by Jesus. So if you're communicating a Jesus that isn't the creator of the universe, then you're not communicating the Jesus of the New Testament. Now, that may be a radical idea for some of you, but you just need to go home and chew on it for a while. See, the New Testament, and that's one reason why I've spent a lot of time over the five years I've been here going through, Old Testament books is because the New Testament presupposes that you understand the Old Testament. And if you don't understand the Old Testament, much of what's in the New Testament becomes meaningless to you. So we have to have that foundation from uh, from the Old Testament. So Paul says you have to turn from these vain things. These vain things indicates their entire religious superstructure and foundation ...to a living God who is defined as a creator, the one who made the heavens, the earth, and all that is in them. Not just some amorphous God, not just some generic deity, but the God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So Paul does not back away from putting creation and a controversial creator God... Right out there in front, and notice he's witnessing to them, but has he mentioned Jesus yet? He hasn't mentioned Jesus or the cross or the sin, but the first thing he gets out there is uh, is the creation. Now, lest we think that well, this was just a unique situation, I want you to flip over and look at 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 um, Acts chapter um, 17. Acts chapter 17. Now this is when Paul is on his second missionary journey, and he's crossed over from Asia to Europe to Philippi, and then in chapter 17 he's moving down the uh, Greek peninsula, and he goes to Thessalonica in the first part of the chapter, and then he goes from there uh, to Berea in verse 10, and then he comes to Athens in verse 16, and this is where we'll take it up. Verse 16 he says, Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. So, Paul has a reaction to all the idolatry that is in Athens. Every street corner had a statue to some god. Every wall had a picture to some god. And so, he is going to use this as an occasion to witness. So, the first place he goes, which was Paul's standard operating procedure, was to the synagogue with the Jews. Why? Because with the Jews there is common ground in that they both worship the same God who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And he reasons in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers, that would mean the Gentile proselytes. And then, not just in the synagogue, but in the marketplace daily, in the agora, he goes out into the marketplace, into the town square, goes down to Uh, The the local stop and shop where he's going to uh, meet people, sit around drinking coffee, and start explaining the gospel to them as he witnesses. As he does this, he creates quite a stir. People say he's teaching strange things, and so the leaders, the intellectual leaders in Athens, come out because they're always uh, they're, they're just stimulated by new ideas intellectually. And in verse 18, we read then certain Epicurean. And Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? See, they're not too sure what what uh, Paul's talking about. And they call him a babbler. What does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them uh, Jesus and the resurrection. In verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. This was the place where they would sit and have tremendous debates and dis- disputations about all kinds of philosophical issues and ultimate realities. And they said, may we know what this new doctrine is which you speak. So they wanted to give him an opportunity to explain himself. And then look down, skip down to verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said men of Athens I perceive that in all things you are very religious now they probably wouldn't have thought that but he sees all these uh, idols around and he says they're really they really are religious even though they may see the the epicureans the epicureans were atheists they did not believe in god so they would have disputed the idea that they were that they were um, uh, religious, and the Stoics did believe in gods, but it was a, a pantheistic god. So he says, I was passing through, and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Notice right there in verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, he hasn't talked about sin yet. He hasn't talked about Jesus yet. He hasn't talked about the cross yet. In the light of many and most, uh, most ideas on evangelism, uh, Paul, you're doing it all wrong. How controversial can you get? but to go straight to creation. See, we have to interpret the Bible in the time in which it was written. So Paul is in in the intellectual center of Greek culture in Athens, so we need to understand something about how the Greeks thought at that particular time as he is engaged in dialogue with these pagan Greek philosophers. We need to ask, what is it that they believed about creation? Well, one of the ancient Greek poets was Orpheus, And Orpheus, I'm going to chart this out on the overhead. Orpheus believed, in terms of his expression of Greek ultimate realities, that the ultimate reality was time. This is a personified deity. There's no actual beginning, so this is an always existent time. Now, time, remember, has dimensions to it. So there is something there. There's time, and time... Generates chaos. So time gives birth to chaos. Now in modern parlance we would call, uh, we might call chaos pure chance. So we have time plus chance. That is exactly the formula of Darwinistic evolution. So the, the ancient Greeks began with time plus chance or time plus chaos and then chaos is an enormous space that contains night, or the, uh, god Nix, contain night, mist, and the upper regions of the air, which they call the ether. Now as chaos just generates this night, this, this darkness, mist, and ether, it begins to swirl around. And it begins to swirl and all of of these molecules, put it in a little scientific terminology, all these molecules get closer and closer, tighter tighter together until it creates a definable mass that takes on the shape of a huge egg that after it is congealed and solidified into this huge egg, it then splits apart into two halves which become heaven and earth. Now that's pretty close to a big bang idea if you ask me. So it comes across as a... The two halves become, become heaven and earth, and we have a. And in mythological terminology, we have time plus chance creates a big bang out of which comes an orderly universe. Now Homer saw the earth pretty much the same way, except when the when the egg split apart, the earth then is surrounded by water. So you see, there's certain similarities and parallels to what we have in Genesis, but Genesis is profoundly distinct. Uh, the earth is flooded by the god Oceanus, who personifies the ocean, and it is out of this ocean then that life begins. To, and the, the first, the gods are generated; all the other gods are generated, and then then uh, life on earth. So everything comes. There is some sort of space-time, space, time, matter. Reality that is exactly what you find in the beginning of the Big Bang. You can't go back uh, beyond that. Hesiod, uh, another Greek, early Greek writer, a slightly different view. He he begins with chaos. Orpheus began with time. Hesiod begins with chaos first, which is an undefined, infinite, immeasurable space, and from chaos comes darkness. Darkness is personified in the god Erebus. And he has two sisters Nix, night, and Gaia, earth. G A E A. Gaia, mother earth. Erebus and Nix have a daughter called Day. So they give birth to Day. And then um, Gaia, the earth goddess, gives birth to a son, uh, Uranus, who is the heavens. And then Uranus is going to give birth to, to Zeus, who is the storm cloud or the thunder god. So you see they're personifying all the forces of nature. So what are you ultimately going to worship? You're ultimately worshiping nature. Now you bring that into a scientific uh, worldview as we have today, then what happens is your ultimate reality is simply matter and molecules. And this is almost exactly what an early or a pre-Socratic philosopher by the name of Thales articulated uh, regarding ultimate reality. He had an atomistic view that I'll, I'll read you some quotes from him later on. But the point that I want to make so far is that this is the mythological cosmogony. Now I'm going to use that word a lot. A cosmogony is an explanation of ultimate origins. That's what the word means. And every religious system, every philosophical system has some sort of cosmogony or explanation of origins. Now in the, in these mythological systems of the Greeks, what we see is that the power of the cosmos, there's some sort of inherent Generating power in the universe itself, in the matter of the cosmos, which generates itself, and these, uh, these forces are then personified. Now, the, by the time of, of, of Paul, you've gone through, you've gone through the, the 5th century BC, the classical period, where the philosophers Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle debunked the whole old mythology, and then after following Uh, Plato, you have the development, or following Aristotle, you have the development of two major schools of thought, Epicureanism and Stoicism. Now, Epicurus lived from 342 to 270 BC. Now, remember, we have to understand, if we understand what Paul's doing in Athens, we have to understand a little bit about the Epicureans and the Stoics. So, Epicurus lives from 342 to 270 he was a follower of aristotle who died while uh, epicurus was a young man he denied that there was any purpose in nature so there's no meaning to anything in nature everything therefore would be a product of chance and it's just random events he believed there was an infinite number of worlds and there was no god so the universe is in, in itself is eternal and self-generating, and everything on Earth evolved directly from the matter of Earth itself. So he sounds fairly modern. The most renowned uh, Epicurean was a Roman by the who is commonly known as simply Lucretius. His full name was Lucretius Carus, and he produced a six-volume work called De Rerum. Natura on the nature of things, on the things of the yeah you know, the things of the natural world about the things of the natural world, and in his view, uh, well I have a quote here from uh, from Lucretius. He says, "Certainly, the atoms did not post themselves purposefully in due order by an act of intelligence." Nor did they stipulate what movements each should perform. So you see, he's got, it's pure random. There's no intelligence. See, today, where there's a big change taking place in science, because you have certain people like Michael Behe down at, down in Pennsylvania at the, um, Lehigh University wrote a book a few years ago called Darwin's Black Box. He's a Roman Catholic. He's not arguing for creationism, but he's arguing for intelligence design. And he basically is a biochemist, and he says there's too much information in the basic cell that Darwin had no idea about. There's too much information in a DNA chain for it to just happen randomly. Something had to put it there with intelligence. There has to be a source of intelligent design. And so there are a number of works being published today that aren't necessarily creationists, but they're very critical of evolution and they're, they're putting forth an intelligent design view that everything shows, everything, there's too much information in every cell of the human body, every cell that's out there for it to just have happened randomly. So this is just the opposite of what Lucretius taught. Certainly the atoms did not post themselves purposefully in due order by an act of intelligence, nor did they stipulate what movements each should perform. As they have been rushing everlastingly, notice eternality of matter, as they have been rushing everlastingly throughout all space in their myriads, undergoing myriad changes, notice that's just random mutations, uh, Throughout, uh, undergoing myriad changes under the disturbing impact of collisions, they have experienced every variety of movement and conjunction till they have fallen into the particular pattern by which this world of ours is constituted. Just pure random chance. Order comes from random chaos. He goes on to say, This world has persisted many a long year, having once been set going in the appropriate motions. From these, everything else follows. He wrote this in his book, *The Nature, the Nature of the Universe*. Lucretius also said that nature is free and uncontrolled by proud masters, and runs the universe by herself without the aid of gods. And he goes on to say, "I have taught you that things cannot be created out of nothing." nor once born, but be summoned back to nothing. So he has this assumption. That's his hidden assumption that just like modern scientists, they have a hidden assumption that you, because we can't see it, feel it, taste it, touch it, measure it, repeat it, you can't have ex nihilo, creation or creation out of nothing. So these are the Epicureans that Paul's addressing. They're not any different from the evolutionists that we might meet down on the campus of Harvard or Yale or, or any other major university in this country. And yet, what is the first thing out of Paul's mouth? It's creation. He doesn't say, oh, I'm not going to cloud the issue here and get them all upset because I'm a creationist. He goes for the juggler because he recognizes a Jesus who isn't the creator isn't the Jesus who's the redeemer. And then he does, it's the same thing with the so- Stoics. The so- Stoics emphasize a simple life. They emphasize sort of a fatalism and a submission to circumstances, whatever they are. And they believe that the order of the world was an evidence of a creator. But for them, the creator is purely pantheistic. Now, pantheism means that, the, that nature equals God or the creation equals God. God is in everything. Okay, so we'll just make it a little God this time. God is in everything. So the tree is God, the rock is God, the the the, the wood is God, everything is God, God is everything. So they basically deify all of nature. Everything in nature becomes deified, which is really the ultimate metaphysic of all of your uh, environmentalists and environmentalism because they've elevated nature above and beyond that which God established. And we'll get into that when we get down into Genesis 3. Uh, Chapter 3. So these are the folks that Paul is addressing. The Stoics are pantheistic. They believe that the creative energy was in the matter of the universe itself. Therefore, the universe is self generating. The universe is God for them. The universe is not distinct from God. So at the very outset, they are confronting a culture that is antagonistic and hostile to the truth of Genesis chapter 1, but they don't sidestep it. They don't say, oh, wait, wait till later. We'll think about it uh, when we get there. Ancient pagan thought had built eons of time into their cosmogony. To all of the ancients, they believed the earth was millions of years old. It went on forever. It was infinite. Now, they didn't describe it as precisely as we do, but they used words like we just saw in Lucretius that it went on and on and on and on. So they have this idea that earth is, and the universe has been around for a long time, which is just the opposite of the view of Scripture. Paul is not addressing an uneducated crowd, but one that is, are the advocates and proponents of their worldview system. So in contrast to all of this, the Bible claims that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So let's start breaking apart Genesis 1, 1. The first phrase is, in the beginning. In the beginning, which gives us a time frame. It looks like this in the Hebrew, Sheath. The first letter here, that that ba, is a preposition in. Reshit is the word beginning. In the beginning. And beginning is a definite noun. It is an inherently definite word in Hebrew. So it is not in a beginning. It is in the beginning. The beginning of beginnings. That there is a specific beginning. In other words, There was a time when the universe did not exist, when the universe was not. So you only have two options, either the universe is eternal or it's temporal. It either has always been here or it's had a beginning in time, one or the other. You can't have any other option. So the very first statement that that the Scripture made is a slap in the face to every single cosmogony that was available on planet Earth when Moses wrote it. The Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Greeks all have an eternal cosmos. They all have some sort of eternality in time, chaos, matter. Something is eternal. And the very first statement, the very first word in Scripture says, no, you're all wrong. There was a beginning. The universe is not eternal. It has boundaries. It was created by God. So the assertion, the next assertion, is that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This means that God is distinct from creation. The term heavens and the earth is a phrase that must be taken collectively. Just as we would um, use a phrase like part and parcel, where you're talking about the whole of something, heavens and the earth was the Hebrew way... um, ...of expressing the universe. There is no one-word concept in the Hebrew language for universe. To speak of the universe, the cosmos, you said the heavens and the earth. So it includes everything that is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what we see here is divine viewpoint says that God is the starting ...and is the place where you must start because God is the one as the creator who defines everything... The starting point is not matter, it's not molecules, it's not gas or energy. In contrast, human viewpoint, no matter what the system, says that the universe, that is uh, some form of matter, energy, hydrogen, gas, or whatever, is the starting point, and everything in the universe then must find its ultimate meaning in this ultimate reality of pure matter or gas, hydrogen, or whatever, Third observation we make here is that there is a beginning to the creation which is located in time, and given enough data, we can perhaps date this. I don't think we have enough data, but we can come up with certain conclusions in terms of answering the question, when did this happen? Point number one, let's look at the problem of dating the creation of Genesis 1.1. Point number one. It could be billions of years, could be millions of years, or it could be just a few thousand or a few hundred years. There is nothing anywhere in the Bible, if you take the Bible at face value, there is nothing in the Bible to suggest that it's more than a few decades or a few hundred years. Now, that may be a whole new idea to some of you, because there's been this tendency to say, yeah, it could be billions of years, Well, where do we get this idea of billions of years anyway? This is point number two. Until the advent of evolutionary science, historical geology, Darwinism, until the advent of evolutionary science based on a principle called uniformitarianism, no one who believed the Bible held to long ages. No one. The most famous chronological system was that of a of an Anglican bishop by the name of James Usher. And if you've got an old King James, or if you've got an old Schofield Bible, in the middle column where you have your Bible references, at the top of that column there's a little box that's got a date in it. And that's based on Usher's chronological system. And he went through all the genealogies, added everything up, and he said Genesis 1-1 occurred... In 4004 B.C., and, of course, so many people ridicule him uh, today. However, uh, Usher did not fall off the turnip truck or watermelon truck, as we say, down in Texas. Usher was one of the most brilliant men in his day. Not only was, was he brilliant... But he did something that was not uncommon, and that was to to use the numbers in the Scripture, accept them as face value, and try to come up with a date for original creation. According to the Jewish calendar, creation occurred in 3760 B.C. According to the numbers in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament based on See, the Hebrew Old Testament that our Old Testament is based on is called the Masoretic Text. It was finalized and formalized in about the 9th century AD. Now, we didn't have anything older than that until they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were dated around the 2nd century BC. When they dug those up, they found out there were very little differences. But there were more differences in the Septuagint. Septuagint is abbreviated LXX. From Sept for 70, that there were uh, allegedly 70 scholars who translated the Pentateuch in 70 days. Apparently, the Hebrew manuscripts they had varied somewhat in some places from the Hebrew manuscripts that were accepted by the Masoretes. So there's a few little differences, and some of the numbers are a little different. So the Septuagint has a date of creation of around 5,270 B.C., Josephus had a date of 5,555 B.C., and Johannes Kepler, who was one of the founders of modern physics, held to a creation date of 3,993 3,993 B.C. Now, I want you to notice there's a vast difference between a date for the creation of the universe of 3,993 B.C., or 5,555 B.C. and 5 billion years. Now, you cannot just come into Scripture and say, well, we're missing a few things here and there. We can really squeeze for Earth history. We can really squeeze another three or four million years in there somehow. There, It's too much time. There's too much time to do that. Modern evolutionary chronology places the origin of man at three million years B.C. Now, point number three. It's popular to ridicule this dating as pre-scientific. They just didn't understand what we do about geology. And, of course, geology and our dating systems in geology are absolute. That's the assumption. It's not true. If you were taught that in school, try to get rid of it. It was a lie. Uh, Usher was no dummy. Usher lived between 1581 and 1656 during the time of the birth of modern science. Uh, one man who accepted his dates without question was a man by the name of Isaac Newton. It may surprise you, Isaac Newton, who d- discovered and defined us, the law of gravity, and many, many other inventions. Isaac Newton had a few aberrations in his theology. He was not a Trinitarian, but he wrote more about theology in the Bible than he did about science. Many of the early scientists were that way. They were very interested in Scripture. They were Bible-believing creationists, and they wrote more commentaries and more about theology than they did about about science. Newton accepted Usher's dates without question. In fact, Newton wrote a book called The Chronology of Ancient Kingdoms where he uh, amended and challenged the chronological schemes of the ancient Egyptians and said that they were wrong for setting the date of the first dynasty before 5000 B.C. because he knew that it couldn't, the earth wasn't that old. In fact, no educated man in the 17th or 18th century would think of the earth as being more than six or 7,000 years old because they accepted what the Bible said at face value. Now, there are problems with dating, and we need to identify these. There are some problems, as I just said, in the conflicts in the numbers between the Masoretic text and the Septuagint, and the Samaritan text. So we can't be precise. But remember, these differences aren't large. These differences make up like four, five hundred, six or 700 years. They do not make up tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions of years. And there's a big difference. So what happens, you hear people say, well, you know, we can't be sure because there, there are gaps or the numbers aren't correct. Don't let that smoke screen fool you. There's a big difference between gaps of 500 years and gaps of 5 million years. Second, there's some question sometimes about the length of the ancient calendar year, but again, that difference would have been minimal. Some had a solar calendar, some had a lunar calendar, and we're not talking about more than 5 or 10 days a year. That still isn't enough to get you uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions of years. Third problem, which we'll deal with when we get there, uh, both in the introductory section I do on creation versus evolution in about a month, and again when we get into Genesis 5 and 11, is the contention that there are gaps in the genealogies. Gaps in the genealogies. The problem that you have is that it's easy to look at some genealogies where it says that A begat B. And Bagad can cover a number of generations. It can be the father, the grandfather, the great-grandfather of B. And you can have gaps. And there are gaps in some of these non-technical, non-specific genealogies, like in Matthew 1 and Luke, where you have, uh, for, have the, these large gaps. But in other genealogies, we have the precise, ga- precise information with all the information in between. But there's a difference between this and A, lived eighty years and begat B. Well even if A is his grandfather, when A is eighty years old, B is born, you can't break it. Technically, technically, and I asked I had one of the most brilliant Hebrew professors Dallas Seminary ever had, and his specialty, in fact he wrote his PhD dissertation on the table of nations which is the Genesis 11 uh, chronology. He wrote his Ph.D. dissertation at Cambridge on Genesis 11, and I asked him one time, I said, Dr. Ross, is there any way you have gaps in the genealogies in Genesis 11? And he said, on the basis of literal grammatical hermeneutics, there can be no gaps in the genealogies. Now, the reason you get this is because there's one name insert in the Luke record that is not found in Genesis 11. So somebody dropped out in the Samaritan, probably in the Samaritan text. That's a textual problem. One person covering a lifespan of maybe a hundred years. One person left out, a hundred years left out, doesn't get you 50,000, 500,000, or five million years, folks. You've got to have. Uh, The whole genealogical period, the whole time frame from the end of the Noahic flood to Abraham is less than 800 years. To get gaps in there that get you 8,000 or 80,000 or 800,000 years requires that you're leaving out more than what you're putting in there. So there are no gaps in the genealogies. At most, it would expand uh, the time frame about 1,000 years. Furthermore, there's a confusion with dating systems uh, that come out of archaeology, but all dating systems used by archaeologists presuppose an evolutionary uniformitarian uh, structure. Now, what is uniformitarianism? Uh, uniformitarianism, I don't have this quote up here, by, uh, a statement by Mark Ridley, who's an evolutionist, states that all that is needed to prove evolution is observed microevolution added to the philosophical doctrine of uniformitarianism, which underlies all science. Here's the word. You probably never heard it in high school. I cannot tell you how many people I have discussed and debated creation and evolution with who do not recognize this word. And yet this word is recognized in all evolutionary literature as the key philosophical presupposition to all evolutionary thought. Now, the Bible specifically defines uniformitarianism in Second Peter 3, 3 through 5. We have it on the overhead. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. In other words, everything continues at the same rate of decay. That's the idea of uniformitarianism, that you can measure the rate of decay of, like carbon-14 or other elements uh, in something, and then you can extrapolate backward based on a uniform decay rate how long that has been there. That's called a clock, and they have different ways of measuring this. But if you can measure a decay rate over the last 150 years, and you get a a scientific formula there, a logarithmic formula, then you can extrapolate back, and you can figure out how old something is. It's flawed in a number of ways. Number one, it's a gratuitous assumption that the decay rates have been the same. If you just have with Noah's flood, you have a destruction of all decay rates, and everything changes because of that catastrophe. But also, not everything gives you the same decay rate. For example, if you measure the decay of the Earth's magnetic field, and Kepler was one of the first to develop the way of of um, measuring the strength of the magnetic field, and there has been a a speci- specific uh, decay rate over the last uh, 200 years that you can plot. And if you extrapolate backward, the Earth's magnetic field cannot be any older than 10,000 years. If you look at the influx of radiocarbon to the Earth, the Earth, again, cannot be more than 10,000 years old. If you measure the influx of, meteor, uh, of meteoritic dust from space, it's too little to calculate. If you measure the influx of sediment to the ocean through rivers, the amount of sediment at the end of a river, then the age of the Earth is 30 million years. If you measure the leaching of chlorine from the continents into the oceans, then it yields an age of only 1 million years. If you measure the decay rate of carbon-14 in Precambrian wood, then the Earth is 4,000 years old. If you measure the influx of lead to the ocean via rivers, then the Earth is 2,000 years old. If you measure the influx of aluminum to the ocean via rivers, then the earth is only 100 years old. If you measure the influx of silver to the ocean via rivers, the earth is 2.1 million years old. If you measure the influx of potassium to the ocean from the rivers, then it's 11 million years old. If you measure the influx of titanium into the ocean, it's only 160 years old. If you uh, measure the instability of the rings of Saturn, then uh, the solar system is a million years old. But then if you measure the accumulation of dust on the moon, then it's only 200,000 years old. In other words, the whole methodology is flawed and the presupposition is flawed. So you can't assume that dating systems have validity because they are grounded in philosophical presuppositions and assumptions that can't be proven that are based on evolution It's circular reasoning. Ultimately, they presuppose the uniform process to prove the uniform process and the longevity of it. Now, the problem is that up until the the early 19th century or late 18th century, no one who studied the Bible at face value ever came up with an age of the earth and the creation of Genesis 1-1, even with the fall of Satan in there and everything else, of more than 10,000 years. What happened when science, almighty science, came along on the basis of evolutionary and uniformitarian presuppositions and started saying that the earth was 20,000 years old or 50,000 years old, then they didn't think that was that big a number, and they tried to fit it in somehow, but it wouldn't fit, because what happened is it went from 25,000 to 50,000 to 500,000 to 5 million to 5 billion Years and it got out of control and you can't make that merge anymore. So when we look at Genesis 1 1 and we even though there is a time lapse between Genesis 1 1 and 1 2 which we'll get to in a week or two, even if there's a time lapse there, there's no reason to just jump in and say, Oh, that means that it can be millions and millions or billions of billions years old. The only reason people introduce those big numbers is because Evolutionary scientists came along and said everything's got to be that way. If it weren't for evolutionary science, if it weren't for human formitarian geology, nobody would be introducing those big numbers because there's no place in Scripture that demands it. Now, there's clearly uh, undefined blocks of time there, but just because they're undefined doesn't have, mean they have to be enormous. So now we look at why creation is important, when the creation occurred, and next time we'll come back and look at the centrality of creation to the Scriptures, again looking at the fact that creation isn't something that is sort of a secondary idea in the Scriptures, but this is foundational to everything, which is why, if you think about it, why it generates so much curiosity and controversy. You just talk to somebody about creation and evolution, immediately their hackles go up and they want to fight, especially if they don't agree with you. And this is why so many people come out when you start trying to answer all the questions about creation and evolution, because it stirs people's curiosity. It strikes at the very root of who we are. We want to know where we came from and what what the defense is for believing what we believe. So we'll continue our study next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word, this time to uh, evaluate just exactly what your word has said and the importance of understanding that you are the God who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand and assimilate the things that we've studied tonight, that we may be able to renovate the foundation of our thinking, that it is clearly constructed on the basis of the divine viewpoint of creation and origins